from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. As a journalist, Sylvester Brown continues to understand the world around him through his brilliantly relatable, fictional characters. Are you a Sal or a Saul? Well, Sal was a conservative uh, brother. He was the one that didn't have time for black power talk and didn't have time for revolution or revelation. He, he, was, uh, he was strictly, you know, black folks have a role in this society. You do what you're supposed to do. You shut up and you do your job. Whereas Saul was this older, not militant, but proud black man who knew his history and always stood up for, you know, uh, uh, black folks. And it seems like there's no escaping creepy old Uncle Ray. That's short for Uncle Racism. He takes many farms. You know, I haven't written about him, but I I have been tempted to write about him during the Trump years because to me... Ray came back, and he came back in all kinds of different guises. He was not just, you know, the the Southern truck-driving, flag-waving, you know, guy. He was a banker. He was a lawyer. He was a doctor. He was, you know, Ray had resurfaced. I'm Sarah Fetsky. This is St. Louis on the Air. Sylvester Brown Jr. has been up and he's been down. He was on top of the world, or at least his hometown, as a Metro columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And then he was down and out, feeling demeaned and micromanaged, and then fired in what he felt to be a gross overreaction. But he found his way back, back to journalism and much more. Brown's new story collection compiles pieces from 1995 to 2018, and so it gets into those lows and those highs, along with context to illuminate them. It also introduces newer readers to some of the fictional characters that he features in his nonfiction, people who might be real, but strictly speaking, aren't. The book is titled White Castles with Jesus and Uncle Ray at the Used Tire Shop, and joining us today to talk about it is Sylvester Brown. Sylvester, welcome. Well, hello, Sarah. How are you? So I'm so excited to talk to you today. And and one of the things I want to talk about is this technique you use in your column writing. Some people might think fictional characters fall in the realm of fake news, but there's actually a long history of newspaper columnists using people who don't really exist to explore the way we live. I grew up reading Mike Royko. He had a boyhood friend named Slats Grobnik who didn't really exist. Who was your inspiration for this technique? Mine was Langston Hughes Mm -hmm. uh, in the... I think uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, just J. Justin Meehan, attorney J. Justin Meehan, introduced me to Langston Hughes' uh, character, Just Be Simple. He, he, he used it in his columns for the Chicago Defender. And this was and back it, in, in the 1940s, is that right? I believe it was, yeah. Between 1940s and ni- early early 1960s, I think he, he kept them going that long. And, and what, just, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, oh, I was just going to say, what, what about this resonated with you? It was it was liberating to me. Um, you know, I, I was just entering the game, just started my newspaper, and I was, you know, following the format of strict, you know, uh, columnist, uh, commentator format. And then I read I read Hughes' stories and how he used Jess, you know, to, to address social issues, religious issues, uh, political issues. 
And, you know, it wasn't just just be something, a whole bunch of characters around that. And just the way he did it and his use of, of words and skills and, and, and people's uh, uh, verbal norms, all that stuff uh, fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So I started, I started playing around with that back then. And, and you memorably played around with it over the years with these two characters named Sal and Saul. Tell us about these yeah. guys. You know, so growing up, you know, in the poor neighborhoods I was in, there were always black men. There were griots. They were, you know, they were preachers. They were shade tree mechanics. They were guys on the corner just drinking and talking smack. So Saul and Sal are a combination, a culmination of all those older black men who influenced me as a child. You know, I would listen to their stories and listen to their advice and how they bantered back and forth and rarely agreeing on anything and just how animated and colorful they were in those conversations. So they they stayed with me. So it was it was really wonderful to be able to use Saul and Sal, the guys at the used tire shop. And there was a real used tire shop in my neighborhood. Um so just just to just to use them to talk about all the issues that was banging around in my head and throughout my life again, was uh, was liberating and fun, actually. And you write that a lot of your white readers um, at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they sided with Sal. What did Sal stand for? Well, Sal was a conservative uh, brother. He was the one that didn't have time for black power talk and didn't have time for revolution or revelation. He, he, was, uh, he was strictly, you know, black folks have a role in this society. You do what you're supposed to do. You shut up and you do your job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew a lot. I knew and still know a lot of people who are like that. Uh, so, yeah, the readers at the Post-Dispatch, where I introduced the column, the, the characters, they always cited on Sal's side, you know, whereas Saul was this older, not militant, but proud black man who knew his history and always stood up for, you know, uh, uh, black folks, always fell on the side of black folks. So they'd had these different little conversation. And um, Saul was my hero. I mean, I like them both, but Saul was the guy that that, uh, I related more to. Hmm. So Saul really spoke to you. But you also, you let Sal get his points in. He's not just just there to be a buffoon. I mean, did they speak to sort of uh, the two voices in your head? It's not just Saul rattling around in there. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. Um, African Americans are not monolithic. We have different opinions. Some of us are very conservative. Some of us are very, you know, uh, activists. Um, and Sal made some very salient points. You know, uh, his 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 conversation about worth ethics and black folks moaning all the time. You know, not doing this and not doing that. I mean, those those are really valid points. But in context, and that's what I set out to do, was to show that both of these arguments are legitimate. Mm-hmm. I mean. It's up to you to decide who won the debate. I mean, but they both, I think, made made a sound and legitimate points. So one of the columns you include in this story collection, this is White Castles with Jesus and Uncle Ray at the used tire shop. Um, you brought Saul and Sal to your personal blog. This is after the Post-Dispatch fired you. And yeah. they're arguing about you. I mean, this is such yeah. a personal <laughs> column. And it was it was hard for me to read in some ways because... I could hear these voices in my own head, the voice telling me, hey, you screwed up a good thing here, you know, after I quit a job versus the other voice saying, no, you had to do that. You stood firm. Was that your way of of just trying to to come to terms with whether or not you'd done the right thing in that situation? That's a a great point. And yes, exactly. It was. I was, uh, you know, 
I felt that I was wrongly fired, and I felt that, you know, I was right, and I felt I ended the way I should have ended it. But on a whole other level, I was like, man, you lost a damn good job. You lost you know, your benefits. You lost your vacation. And, you know, your wife is not happy about this, and you got two little girls. And so, yeah, I was I was beating myself up, and I had to, had to talk my way through it. Maybe I'm a little bit schizophrenic, but I, I do it publicly. So, yeah, uh, being able to not only go to Saul and Sal, but to write about the conversations in my head that I imagine these two opposing sides would have, kind of helped me uh, get through it, you know, helped help me realize, yeah, man, you know, it, it hurt, but here you are. Uh, in a weird way, you're in a better position, because at the same time, I went to work for Tabas Mavia Book Company mm-hmm. at the exact same time that this was going on. So just working through all that and seeing that there was uh, divine wisdom, I guess, in the whole situation helped me move forward. It helped me realize that what happened was really supposed to happen. And you are a better person for it. You know, I was, it was hurt economically, and yeah, I lost the stature and all that stuff, but I, mean, I was freed. You know, I could do what I want to do. I could, you know, and this was when Obama was just being elected, and I went to uh, California and Chicago, other places around this this moment of great black movement. And I was free to do it and experienced it on my terms. Hmm. So you wrote that before they fired you, you had the clear sense they were gunning for you, that you were being micromanaged in certain ways. And then we should say for people who didn't follow this or, or don't remember what happened back in the day, you guys ended up having your ultimate falling out. Um, there was an ethical dispute. You had basically accepted the offer of a free trip to Washington, D.C. from supporters of a group you'd previously written about. Um, they found out you'd taken this trip. You said you had no plans to write about it. Um, they said this was a violation of the ethical policy. They offered to let you go quietly, you said no. Um, you went public with this because you felt strongly that you'd done nothing wrong. But you had felt that, that even before this, um, that, that they were coming after you. And, and you write in this book about how you, you felt, quote, small and gray. What was that period yeah. like in your life when you kind of felt the boot of, of the man on the back of your neck? It, it was challenging because, you know, before going to the Post-Dispatch, I had my own newspaper and I had my own voice and all that good stuff. And I didn't expect to have that at the Post-Dispatch. But what I was not prepared for was, you know, they made up rules, you know. Uh, I mean, write you up for this and do this for that, but yet my colleagues were doing the same things. So I, I had to go back and forth with the union and have all these letters kicked out of my phone. It was a, a constant challenge. Then it was what I was writing. Uh, just really strange rules, like for example, when uh, when the Obama was running for the uh, running for the presidency in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. uh, they said stop writing about Obama. You're a metro columnist. This is a national issue. And me being a, you know the smart person that I am, I, I invited my editor to take a ride with me to East St. Louis, and I said you stop anybody on the street and ask them if this is an important issue to them. <laughs> so I continued to write about Obama, and they didn't like that. So it was little things. I just I wasn't that go along to get along brother. I was a guy who really thought you know if I was right, I'm going to tell you I'm right, and if I'm wrong, you know I'll tell you I'm wrong. But it didn't go well. And it was always this micromanaging and questioning and checking. When I'd write articles about Mayor Slay at the time, it was like, well, what does the other younger, wider reporter think? So it was always this feeling that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't well enough. But I don't want to paint it all as negative because it really wasn't. I was some wonderful people at the Post-Dispatch, great exposure, uh, great platform. But, yeah, that, that 
eternally it was eating me up. I always felt compromised, and I felt small. And so this trip thing, which was so ridiculous, there were three of us, three columnists that were that were written up on ethics violations at the same time, me, Bernie, Bur- Bernie Miklas, and Brian Burwell. They were written, they were being charged because they had accepted contracts with opposing news stations. I took a trip to Washington, D.C. that I paid for. And they said, now Brian and Bernie got a slap on the wrist. But they, they were intent on firing me. It really wasn't, to me, it really wasn't about uh, the issue. It was about, you know, I know they no longer wanted me on the team. So, Do you think race was a big factor in that? The fact they no longer wanted you on the team and, and the fact that they kept coming at you with these rules that, that didn't seem to apply to colleagues? What was going on at that time? This was the uh, early, to, to the mid-2000s, 2009. Mm-hmm. And they were just under a whole lot of pressure from opposing uh, um from the from Fox News and all these other conservative channels that were making millions and millions of dollars and siphoning advertising money from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So they were really trying to appease their red state readers, the subscribers. And at the time when they fired me, they actually had a, a clandestine campaign going out to certain zip codes, which actually, they, in the journalism review, wrote about this. They had a campaign that was going out to certain zip codes that were saying, we're not as liberal as you think. Hmm. So I just think, yeah, I, just think I, I became a pain in their ass, excuse me. Um, <laughs> and they, they, I think they just wanted to you know, get, get rid of the guy who was ultra-liberal and ultra-black. And, you know, I just wish they had did that. I just wish they had fired me instead of just coming up with this bogus charge, which was in the context of who was charged. Mine was the mine was the was the least uh, egregious. <laughs> We're talking today to Sylvester Brown, Jr. Uh, he's a longtime St. Louis journalist. His new story collection is White Castles with Jesus and Uncle Ray at the used tire shop. And Sylvester, I asked you there about racism, and that leads us right into another um, fictional character <laughs> who's maybe not so fictional that we need to talk about today, and that is the titular Uncle Ray. Um, yeah. in, in this case, Uncle Ray is short for Uncle Racism, and you compare him to St. Louis's crazy old uncle. Uh, tell us, what, what led you to this idea of, of Uncle Ray as, as racism in the flesh? You know, I found myself always talking about racism and cursing out racism and actually wondering, how did this, this idea that one race based on skin color is superior to the other. How did it become so powerful? How did it become so institutionalized? How did it become, you know, so structural? So I always question that. But then at one point, you know, something happened uh, when I first wrote about it, and it made me actually curse racism. So I, so I, I went from that to actually he became, he became a character to me. He became this dirty, nasty, filthy, decrepit old man. And that I could really discuss and curse and argue with. So that so I, I introduced him um, when I had Take Five magazine, I think in uh, eighty seven or ninety one, I forget. Um, but he also followed me to the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And actually, I talked to uh, Uncle Ray uh, two weeks ago when we were when the Washington D.C. was under siege. And once again, I find myself saying, "How the hell did you think that you could overtake the Capitol?" You know, what's wrong with you, Ray? (laughs) (laughs) And and what was Ray thinking? Is is Ray no longer sentient? I don't know. No, no, Ray Ray's always been mad. Let's not let's not get that. He's always been crazy. Yeah. Uh, But but he's powerful crazy, and he takes many forms. You know, I haven't 
written about him, but I have been tempted to write about him during the Trump years, because to me, Ray came back, and he came back in all kinds of different guises. He's not just, you know, the the Southern truck-driving, flag-waving, you know, guy. He was a banker. He was a lawyer. He was a doctor. He was, you know, Ray had resurfaced. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm still in true with Ray, and I, I'm not finished with him yet. So, Sylvester, <laughs> you know, you, you say you're not done with him yet. And yet, you know, I was reading a column that you that you compiled in this book. This is from the year 2000 when you were writing about Uncle Ray. This is in Take Five magazine, the magazine you started. Here's a quote. And this is what you are telling him in this column. You say more and more whites are talking about diversity and saying they want to tackle racism for once and for all. A few of them are even showing up at protest rallies to speak against you and calling for your demise. And, and you're telling Uncle Ray this is a sign of hope. Well, Ray just laughs and points out it's all part of his plan, that these same whites are siphoning away tax dollars from the city for their lofts and their high-rises, even as black folks are, quote, sent packing. This was crazy to read that you wrote this in the year 2000. It feels like something, a columnist could write this exact same column about St. Louis in 2021. Do you feel like in some ways nothing has changed here? That's very observant of you, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. When I was reading that again, I was like, man, this this could be written, you know, in 2014, 2015, 2020, because Ray is still very, very powerful. And in many ways, he's elusive. He's there, but he's not there. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it, the, you know, the, the heartbreaking part about this for me, Sarah, is that I'm 63. My children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren will be dealing with the issues that I dealt with, my father dealt with, and my grandfather dealt with. And that, to me, is just heartbreaking. Do you see St. Louis making any progress with its Uncle Ray problem? Oh, my God, that's a loaded question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you know, on the surface, yes, there are more black folks in power, more black folks in politics, more black folks in influential positions. On that level, yes. But on another level, on I think the most important level, we have got work to do ourselves. You know, I'm happy that Trump is out of office. I'm happy that Joe Biden is our president. But if nothing else, President Trump and the pandemic expose all the uh, vulnerabilities of being black. And all those things are still with us today. So until we decide collectively, and I'm not talking about revolution, until we decide collectively that we are going to go back and control our neighborhoods, control our schools, control our own economic destiny. We're going to always be in this victim role. And St. Louis doesn't make that easy because the powers that be, the movers and shakers, are still thinking, how do I build the next big project downtown? How do I build the next big development for rich developers? We still, they, it still has that mindset of 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, going back, back to Puerto Rico. So until we decide, and we need our black politicians to, to up the ante, until we decide that we are going to control our own destiny, socially, economically, politically, we're going to always be trailing. Mm-hmm. And I see St. Louis way behind others, other cities in this arena. Mm-hmm. 
I'm glad you mentioned COVID-19 there because you are back to being a columnist again. You're in the pages of the St. Louis American, and you're there on – it's a one-year fellowship, and you're there to chronicle the effects of of the pandemic on the black community. This has been – it's been great to see what you do with this beat. You've brought so many interesting voices in. Every week there's somebody who who brings a new perspective. What's the bigger picture look like to you? Is the black community weathering what's been such a terrible storm? Well, thank you. I'm not really a columnist. I'm actually a, a, a COVID writer. My my beat is COVID's impact on the black community. But what I've been trying to do is approach the job from a, a narrative standpoint, telling stories about people. So in that regard, I got to say, I am very, very inspired. You know, I've, mm-hmm. from the from the guy who who determined to keep his bar open, KJ's, you know, by any means necessary. To the doctors who I've talked to, and some of them, like I did one, there's one in today's paper. Um, she's a great, in the middle of this pandemic, she had a baby during the pandemic, but she has a wonderful sense of humor. And she's, and she's, uh, she's an infectious disease doctor. She's been, she's been working on this since the AIDS crisis in the 80s. But she has a wonderful sense of humor and a, and a beautiful outlook. So people I've talked to from, you know, the street level to the academic level to the medical level, have all been inspiring to me. You know, they've all, they, they're all doing their thing, facing this pandemic and trying to survive, coming up with ways to do things. They're creative. So, yeah, it, it's, been a, it's been a great beat for me, only be, not, only, not only because it's inspiring, but it's been a chance to flex my, my narrative muscle, to go in there and find a story. You know, I could, I could do statistics and quotes, but I really want to know about the person. Who are you? What makes you tick? What bothers you? What makes you cry at night? What makes you keep going? That's been a that's been challenging for me. But it's also been very rewarding. Everything seems to be falling in place. I don't know where this thing is going, but uh, it seems like you know the the uh, the universe is uh, working with me. Well, it does feel like that, and it feels like, I mean, man, the, you know, these, you don't want to call them columns, even though they kind of feel like columns to me. Um, these pieces just, they, they bring us such a portrait of resilience, and it's hard to imagine when this one year is up, you're going to be ready to, to give up that beat. Do you want to keep doing this kind of writing on such a regular basis? I do. I enjoy it. And, I, you know, I don't know if the Deaconess Foundation is going to re-up and do it again, or if the Americans going to find another way to do it. But, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. You know, I... I um, like this, I'm getting up there, and I want to end my life, you know, in the Walter Mosley lane. You know, I want to be writing novels and, you know, a series of novels. And so it seems like this particular job is also preparing me for that. I think that's that's absolutely right. And, man, this is your second book out now. I see the third is going to be a novel. Sylvester Brown, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Sarah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And Sylvester Brown's new book is White Castles with Jesus and Uncle Ray at the Used Tire Shop. Um, We have a link on our website where you can get a copy yourself. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.